0: hello welcome back to the word weaver podcast you're listening to chapter 24 on today's podcast chapter i thought it would be helpful to walk through a complete guide or glossary of literary and publishing terms i know that for me when i first started out on my book publishing journey and just getting into freelance writing i was googling terms every two seconds because There were all of these new phrases, acronyms, and weird jargon being thrown at me that I felt as though I was just supposed to know or understand because I like to write, but that definitely was not the case. My frustration was that all of these websites, even books on the craft of writing and blogs, just kind of assumed that... You should know what they're talking about like it was this little hidden club and if you didn't understand the acronym you weren't a real writer which no one should feel that way it's completely new language so I never did find a simple easy to follow guide and that's why I decided to create one for myself and that's exactly what I want to share with you today on the word weaver podcast I also received a question asking whether I could quickly go over manuscript specifications on the type of font, should it be single-spaced or double-spaced, of what you would send to a literary agent. I didn't think that would necessarily be enough to warrant its own podcast chapter, but since it's all actually part of publishing terms and jargon and literary language, I figured it would make sense to just quickly go over it and talk about it in today's chapter. Without further ado, let's dive right in. Alright, before I dive into specifics, another question that I get asked a lot, especially from non-writers is, what exactly is a manuscript? It's one of the most heavily used terms in the literary and publishing worlds, I know that I throw it around all the time, but when you talk about your manuscript to family and friends, they sometimes will give you a blank stare, or they think you're just trying to sound extra fancy, when really you're actually just being politically correct. So the first term that I want to go over is manuscript, and this evolved, as you can guess, all language seems to evolve from Latin, and it means written by hand. Manu means by hand, and scriptus means to write. A manuscript refers to a writer's unpublished work, and it can be handwritten or typed. A full manuscript is your fully finished body of work, and a full manuscript can be your first draft or it can be your final draft. As I've mentioned before on the podcast, my final manuscript was about 90,000 words and about 400 printed computer pages double-spaced. Again, I'll get to all of those specifics in just a second. A partial or an unfinished manuscript is also a commonly used phrase and again that's pretty self-explanatory but it means your body of work is only half complete so if you talk to a lot of writers or authors they'll say oh I have a partial manuscript which means that it's a work in progress since it takes years to fully publish a book and see it on shelf manuscript is the word used by literary agents editors publishing houses critique partners and writers far more often than the term book or novel is used because technically it's neither a book or a novel until it goes through the entire publishing process, which again can take years. Until then, it's just a manuscript. And something that I learned throughout this whole thing, taking it even a step further, is that most agents or editors or publishers simply refer to your manuscript using the abbreviation MS or MSS, which is just the plural form of manuscript if you're working on multiple drafts at a time. When my agent and I were first starting to email back and forth, she began using MS in sentences, and I was like, is she referring to multiple sclerosis? Like, what is she talking about? And then I had to Google it and I discovered, oh, this is what agents use and publishers and editors to refer to the term manuscript when you're first starting out and pitching literary agents, you will never submit your full manuscript right away to them. You must first submit a query letter, which I actually did a whole podcast chapter on, and you can learn about that in chapter 13 on how to write a query letter and pitch an agent. But if the agent is interested in your query letter, that's when they'll request to review your full manuscript. I know that's one thing that first tripped me up when i was starting my querying process i was like why don't i just send my full manuscript to them but this is how it goes never send it in the first point of contact always make them ask for your manuscript by sending them first a query letter or your book proposal now getting to that listener question of manuscript specifications I just want to start with the disclaimer that in each literary agency on their website they have exact requirements so make sure that you review those individually before firing off your pitch that being said the general rule of thumb is to use time's new roman font i know it sounds boring but that's the classic standard always 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 double space your manuscript even if visually you think it looks better at 1.5 spacing it might show an agent that you aren't following traditional guidelines so they could be turned off so just make sure you double space your manuscript. Use standard one-inch margins and then also have a simple cover page that includes the book's title and a subtitle if you have one. The name or names if you have co-authors and the title should be centered in the middle of your page with the author's name below and then in the bottom right hand corner You could also do the bottom left-hand corner, but I just prefer the right-hand corner. Include all of your contact information, and this is your email address, phone number, current address, website, and any social media handles if you think those are necessary to include. Throughout your manuscript, double-check that you have page numbers. I always do mine on the bottom right-hand corner, and make sure that you have it on every single page except for the title page. Also include a header at the top of each page, so for me, I use a basic one, and in the top left-hand corner, I just have my last name in all caps, Johnson. In the middle, I have the title of my book, and then on the far right-hand side of the header, I have the genre, so for me, it was nonfiction. As I mentioned before, my completed manuscript, which was double-spaced Times New Roman, was about 400 computer pages, And I know that when you pick up a finished book, you look at it and you go, well, this isn't exactly a printed computer page. How do they format this? This doesn't look like double spaced. It looks like singular spacing. Don't worry about any of that because your design team will figure out the layout. Or even if you're self-publishing, you will get to that point at the end and your page numbers will change. But for the purpose of sending to a literary agent, always adhere to these guidelines. All right, now let's get into some more terms. I want to start by grouping all of the genres. Again, you've probably heard of these before, but do you really know what they mean? They sound common, but they're often misused. So, fiction, this is a completely made up story. Nothing in a fiction novel is true. It can be based on a true story, but that will always be specified. Nonfiction means a true story based on facts. Historical fiction is a made up story based on real time and places in history so there's historical facts mixed in with fiction and then historical non-fiction is a true story based on accurate facts in history so all of the characters are accurate science fiction is writing based on real or imaginary scientific developments and these are usually set in the future you'll see most sci-fi books set in the distant future And then this is something that a lot of people confuse, an autobiography and a memoir with a biography. So an autobiography or a memoir is the writer's story of his or her own life, and then a biography is a writer's account of someone else's life. It can get a little murky because a lot of celebrities' autobiographies, which is supposed to be their story written by them about their own lives, are often ghost because they're not necessarily good writers, they're just popular figures in society. So that's a little bit of a gray area, but basically it still falls under autobiography. Just be aware that a lot of those are actually ghost-written. The next one I want to explain is the difference between a book and a novel. I used to use the terms interchangeably, I thought they were the same thing, and for a long time I referred to my own work as writing a novel, but actually A novel is a fictional or untrue imagined story. So since my book is nonfiction, it's not a novel. I am not a novelist. Mine is just a book and I am the author of that book. So that's one that I wanted to make sure that I differentiated because a lot of people use them both as the same word. Another term thrown around a lot in the literary world is the word prose. And prose is just referring to a literary work that uses familiar, often conversational type language. So when I'm writing the show notes for this podcast chapter, I'm writing a blog. Usually that's prose because it's just me using everyday jargon. It's not very fancy. It's just the way that I speak written down. So that is prose. All right. So some other literary elements that you will come across kind of goes back to your English class days in high school. At least that's what all of these terms reminded me of and I had to refresh myself on them. I'll try to run through these ones pretty quickly because I'm sure you've heard of them before but I just want to make you aware of them because they will come up more often as you begin your writing journey. And the first is protagonist. This is the main character, often the hero or the good force of good in your story. The antagonist is the opposite. It's the person or external force hurricane or something that works against the main character or hero of the story setting this one is used a lot you'll talk about this with your agent or your editor and the setting is the place or location and time frame where your story takes place another new one for me that I had to refresh myself on is the exposition an editor said well you need a little bit more exposition and I actually had to google that one But basically it is just at the beginning of your story where all of the characters are introduced and the background and setting are described. You really want to kind of set the reader in the exposition and give them a full taste of the world and the journey that you're about to take them on conflict is a self-explanatory word i think we all know what conflict is but in the writing world there are four basic types of conflict so there's person versus person that's number one and that's conflict between two or more characters the second form of conflict is person versus self and this is a character that has an internal struggle with themselves or their own mind The third form is person versus society. So there's a problem between your character and the world or society in which they live. And this can be a school setting or with the law or a conflict with a certain religion. Then the fourth type of conflict is person versus nature. And this is when there's a huge issue between a character and some natural element like a blizzard, a tornado, a mountain climb, or they're lost at sea. So all of these are types of conflict, and these are the obstacles or struggles that your protagonist or antagonist will face throughout the book. Climax, there's no sexual innuendo here, but this is the high point in the action of the story, and this is the big point of change, where something happens that forces your character or characters on a different path, Every good book or novel has this point and after the climax of a story some sort of transformation has to start happening. The falling action is right after this big change in the story and these are the subsequent consequences that lead towards the story's end. And instead of the end a lot of editors or agents or publishers will refer to it as the resolution so this is where all of the loose ends in your story between characters between plot points are tied up nicely now the next few should definitely ring a bell from english class and the first one is alliteration and that's just the repeating initial consonants to emphasize different words it's used a lot in poetry So, for example, on my website, I love alliteration. I don't know why, if it's a symmetry of using the same letter to begin every word, that just makes me really happy. I remember my old blogs, I don't have them anymore, but they were Manhattan Maven, Matterhorn Maven, and Massachusetts Maven, and I just love that they were all alliterations. Even now, on my current website, along the top, I have plot, purpose, portfolio, prose, podcasts, places, and play, and those are all of the different drop-down menus that you can look and play around with on my website. Simile is another term that is commonly used, and this is comparing two things using the words like or as. See, don't I remind you of your English teacher talking about all this stuff? But an example of a simile is something like, her smile was cold as ice. And then there are also metaphors, and this is similar to a simile. I won't try to say that 10 times fast, but the difference with a metaphor, I mean, it compares two things, but it doesn't use like or as. So if I use that same example, the simile of her smile was as cold as ice. The metaphor is just her smile was ice. In writing a book, you're often encouraged to use metaphors and similes, But be careful, try to use these sparingly. They can get a little bit frustrating and jolt the reader out of the sentence. They're not always used correctly and they can be overused, but sometimes they're really nice to kind of paint a picture in the reader's mind of what you're trying to explain. The biggest tip that I got from one of my professors was, if you're going to use metaphors, never use cliched ones. They should always be unique and specific as possible. So for example, instead of saying her hair was as thin as paper, which is kind of a common thing. People use paper a lot. You could say her hair was as thin as strings on a harp, which is very specific. It paints a picture of these little strands versus her hair was as thin as paper. That's kind of overused and doesn't really make sense and it's not unique or specific. That might not be the best example, but that's the first thing that I came up with on the top of my head. At least you get the idea of what I'm saying. Then the next few, these were notes given to me sometimes by my editors and they were used more personification. And this is when you give human qualities to animals or things. An example of this is the wind exhaled. So wind can't actually breathe or exhale, humans can. So that's a good um, example of personification foreshadowing this term is used all the time I think we all kind of have heard of it we know what it means but basically foreshadowing helps the reader anticipate the outcome so you drop little hints without giving away what is about to happen and usually you will see foreshadowing at the end of each chapter which is how and why readers are enticed to keep coming back to read more If you ever see the note from a critique partner or an editor or an agent where it just says imagery, this means that you should be using more descriptive words or phrases that appeal to all five senses. So smell, hear, touch, taste, sight. Describe all of that to give a better sense of imagery. Another term that you probably haven't heard again since school is onomatopoeia or maybe you've never heard that term, it kind of sounds a little bit like it's made up or super supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, but onomatopoeia is a real word and it means using words that imitate sounds. So hiss, buzz, swish, crunch, those are all forms of onomatopoeia. The last kind of literary writing term that I wanna go over is POV, which stands for point of view. And when this is circled or noted on your manuscript, It usually means that you're not using the correct POV, or you should think about switching it. The different types of POV are first person. This is used most commonly. First person is when the narrator is a character, and it's usually the protagonist. But not always. It can be the antagonist sometimes too. And first person books you can tell are when there's always the words I or we then a third person pov is a narrator who is separate or outside the story and instead of seeing the words i or we a third person pov will use the words he she they those kinds of things and just because i want to give you all of the information there are actually two different kinds of third person narrators or third person povs and they are third person limited and that's when the narrator tells only what one character is thinking, and then the second kind is third-person omniscient. I can never say that word. I'm so happy I just said it correctly. But third-person omnis—see, I can't say it again. Omniscient is a narrator who can see into the minds of all of the characters and will write from all of the various viewpoints. My literary agent actually uses the terms unreliable narrator and reliable narrator a lot. And I kind of understood what she meant, but again, this was something that I looked up just to make sure that I was on the right page. And an unreliable narrator is someone who is telling the reader the story, but they themselves don't have all of the information. So this is used a lot in thriller books like Gone Girl or The Woman in the Window. That is an unreliable narrator because... They're solving the crime or the mystery along with the reader versus a reliable narrator. And this is somebody who is telling you the story and you trust that they're telling you the truth and accurate events. Most books have reliable narrators where you just take what they're telling you as the facts. This is how the story unfolded in fiction or nonfiction. But unreliable narrators as a genre or a way of writing is actually becoming pretty popular as you can see with number one bestsellers like The Woman in the Window or Gone Girl. Okay, now let's get to all of the publishing terms and phrases. These are ones that I am now in the midst of hearing and had to create my own cheat sheet and wanted to make sure that I gave it to you. There are so many phrases and terms tossed around, I'm constantly asking, sorry, what does that mean exactly? Here are a few of them explained in case you come across them in your own writing or book publishing journeys. The first is comps. The question I get asked is what about the comps or did you think about the comps? At first I'm used to a business background, I thought that meant like comp products. I know it doesn't mean complimentary or computers, Literary agents and editors use the term comps to refer to competitive or comparative titles or authors. A literary agent will usually require three to five comps to help them define your genre and explain your type of book to publishers or the press. The tricky thing when talking about comps in the publishing world is that you have to make sure your book is similar but also again competitive so slightly different or unique from the comp that you're talking about for example if somebody says oh my comp is eat pray love then you know the book probably includes a person on a journey of self-discovery there's probably travel in it maybe a female protagonist but the difference or the unique point of view to that comp is that maybe it's a male protagonist on a journey of self-discovery and instead of traveling through europe he is on an expedition in antarctica Next up is the term acquisition. So this is when publishers buy the right to publish your book or the book from the author. And there is one key meeting in publishing houses. This is the big meeting where the entire team sits around a round table. Well, I picture it like a knight's round table. Maybe it's rectangular. And they decide which books to buy. So that internal meeting is called the acquisitions meeting or just acquisitions. Next is TBR, this one you will see all over Instagram or book bloggers or book reviews on Goodreads and TBR just stands for to be read so this is your to be read pile or a stack of books that you'd like to get to eventually. I have the problem where I go into a bookstore and I come out with a handful of books to add to my TBR pile and then I never get around to getting them and I just keep buying more and more books so my new year's resolution, one of them at least, is to get through my TBR pile this year without buying any more books. So we'll see if I can stick to that. A WIP or a WIP stands for your work in progress. This one, a lot of writers who are writing their second books or drafting will refer to their WIP. An ARC, A-R-C, this stands for Advanced Reading Copy or Advanced Review Copy. Another term that's thrown around or used is also R A R E, and this is an advanced reader's edition. An older term that means advanced reading copy or advanced reader's edition is called a galley. I don't know if this is used as much anymore. I think it still is in the UK, but they're all the same thing. When I first heard the term galley, I honestly thought of Johnny Depp and Pirates of the Caribbean like down in the galleys, but in the publishing world, A galley or an arc or an R is an uncorrected proof of the book, and these are created by the publisher months before the final book is printed or released, and arcs or galleys are sent to book reviewers, booksellers, bloggers, and any journalists that you want to create buzz or write about your book to get publicity before it comes out on shelf. There might be a lot of typos and arcs, but they are bound to look like the real paperback book. The paper material is not usually as nice as the final book, and the cover might change slightly. So that's why they're also referred to as pre-first editions. There are so many terms, but the most common one you'll see nowadays is an arc. Next up, while we're on the A's, is the term advance. So this is the sum of money that is paid to the author up front immediately upon signing a contract or a book deal with a publisher. Getting a big advance is so exciting, so you'll hear a lot of talk back and forth with a literary agent about advances. Advances are usually paid in four installments, and they are always negotiated by the literary agent, which is why you want to have a really good agent on your side who knows the ins and outs and gets you the best deal. Um, but the four installments that you will get your advance in are after you sign the initial contract. This is So exciting. Then the second one is after you submit your final finished manuscript to the publisher after all of the edits have been done. Then the third installment of your advance is after the book is published in hardcover. And then the fourth and final installment is after your book is published in paperback. So even if you get a huge six-figure advance, you usually don't get all of that money right up front. It's usually split out into four installments. Next up is the term backlist titles. This I've heard a lot about from booksellers. They're always like, oh, it's a backlist title. I kind of nodded along like I knew what that meant I think I could kind of guess but a backlist title is a book that has been published in the past or a very long time ago but is still in print so a good example of that is Catcher in the Rye or To Kill a Mockingbird those were published so long ago but because they're still required reading for a lot of schools they're still heavily in print so those are backlist titles blurb is a very funny word to say but this term is used a lot and a blurb is just a short paragraph or description it's the text that you see on the back of the book and it's a summary for the reader of what it's all about blurbs can also include quotes from other authors or celebrities often you'll see those little blurbs on the cover and they are all used to pitch media The jacket is the term used to describe the book's front cover. And in the publishing world, again, where they have these key internal meetings where the big decisions are made about the cover design and what's going to go on the book's cover, these are called jackets or jacket meetings. I love this term. I just think of putting a little jacket on top of my book in case it's cold, so I don't know. I love it, and I don't know if I'm weird, but whenever I read a book, I always take off the cover jacket to read and then put it back on when I put it back on my shelf. I don't know why I do this. I think it's so fun to see what the book's color, like the cover and the color of it beneath that kind of plastic covering. Anyway, let me know if you're the same. I know that's a really weird trait, but while we were on the subject of jackets, I had to mention it. Next up is house or the house. And in Canada, there are big five banks. And in general, there are five big publishing houses. So these are often just referred to as the house. Like what house did you sign with? Reminds me a little bit of Harry Potter with like Ravenclaw, Gryffindor and all that. Of course, there are a lot of smaller houses or publishing houses that are amazing too, but often the big five like Penguin Random House, HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster are what most authors try to get their book published under. And then to tack onto the house, there's another term called imprints. This for a while confused me, but now I fully understand. So each house, let's use Penguin Random House as an example, has various imprints, kind of like subcategories, attached to them. Penguin Random House has over 50 imprints, and these imprints specialize in different genres or interest areas or types of books that they publish. For example, you could be signed to Penguin Random House and then have your book published by Alfred A. Knopf, or Doubleday, as these are various imprints of Penguin Random House. Next up is ISBN. So every book is assigned a unique ISBN number, and this stands for International Standard Book Number. It's a 13-digit code. It's always on the back of a book. You'll see this at libraries and in bookstores, and this is how you can identify each SKU um, on a shelf. The term literary agent, you've heard me use many times. I'm sure you've heard this before, but what the heck does it actually mean? What do these people actually do? So just in general, a literary agent is the person responsible for managing an author's entire career. No big deal or anything. Literary agents are the people who will be pitching your book to the publishing houses to get you the book deal. They also facilitate the relationship between you, the author, and your editor, so they'll step in anytime if there's something you don't feel comfortable with changing that your editor is really pushing for. They're kind of the mediator in that sense. And then literary agents are also the ones that negotiate all of your contracts. So, how much you get in royalties, how much your advance is, and then they will take a cut or a percentage of the advance and of the royalties. And I've mentioned this before, but the standard is about 15%, which might sound like a lot, but honestly, it's the only way to get your book even in front of a publisher. And they are worth their weight in gold. I couldn't do anything without my literary agent i would be so lost they are your teammate and you both have the same financial goals so really everything is aligned once you sign with a really 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 great literary agent pub day this i always picture an english pub pints of beer maybe saint patrick's day but in the literary world pub day is the author's official publishing day I know on Instagram I always see people posting and messaging each other oh happy pub day and this is the day when your book is officially on sale and available to purchase in bookstores. It's definitely a big cause for celebration so yeah pub day is a very very exciting term in the literary world. Pre-orders. This kind of speaks for itself but in the Publishing industry pre-orders are when the book is not yet ready for purchase in-store. It's kind of the amp-up period, which can be sometimes a year long, where people can place pre-orders for your book online on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, or Chapters Indigo. And then with these pre-orders, your book will be delivered on pub day. Pre-orders are talked about a lot because they are super important This I discovered and I have never forgotten, but it's the only way really that you can become a bestseller is if you have a really great pre-order period or pre-order campaign. Let's say if you get pre-orders, people order your book for 8 to 12 months. All of those sales count on the very first day, the same day that your book is officially released. And let's use the New York Times, for example. They look at sales by week so technically if you had a year's worth or eight months worth of sales backed up and they all counted on that first day which is your first week of sales then that is your best bet for making a New York Times list chances are you won't get that kind of volume or momentum ever again so it's really really important they have huge pre-orders because that kind of determines whether you're a bestseller that's why you will definitely see a lot of celebrities or Instagram influencers or bloggers with New York Times bestselling books because they have such a huge reach online and they're able to get that audience to pre-order their book and they count towards their first week of sales. Next up is the term slush pile. This one I think is so funny. I always want to slushy whenever I hear it. But slush pile is the stack of manuscripts that have been sent to a literary agent or a publisher for consideration, something that you want them to read, but they haven't had a chance to get around to reading yet. You'll hear often literary agents or publishers saying, oh my God, my slush pile's overflowing or I don't have enough time to get to my slush. And this is just all of the manuscripts that they have on their desk that they have to read. And lastly, unsolicited submissions. You'll see this term used frequently and it will either be unsolicited submissions or unsolicited manuscripts. These are on every publisher's website. And before, in the golden days of publishing, you could occasionally bypass having a literary agent, and once you wrote a book, you could directly submit your manuscript to a publisher, so one of those publishing houses I talked about. But now, every publisher requires a manuscript to be submitted to them only from a literary agent. They will not accept unsolicited submissions directly from the writer. Literary agents in that sense are gatekeepers and they vet manuscripts for the publishers that they actually believe are worth their time reading. That's why nowadays it can be so hard to even secure a literary agent because they won't even accept submissions or manuscripts that they don't believe that they could eventually sell to a publisher. There you have it. Those are all of the main literary and publishing terms that I've come across so far in my book journey, but I'm sure there will be more invented as time goes on. I hope this was a helpful breakdown for you of all of the new words that will be thrown at you throughout your journey. If you ever do need to reference this guide or glossary of terms, you can always check out the show notes at louiseclairejohnsoncom slash podcast because I've left all of this in writing there for you to enjoy. That is it for today's chapter of the Word Weaver podcast. If you like what you heard today or have a topic that you'd like me to talk about, you can leave it as a comment in iTunes or on Instagram at Word Weaver Podcast. Until next time! I held away with words for a while